Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, my name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. If I've not had the privilege, privilege of getting to know you yet, I hope to. Uh, if you are a guest here, we love to just connect with people that are saying hi. If you're here for a week or even more, that's awesome. Um, we actually have connections cards back at Grace Central, and if you're willing to give us your name and email address, just gives us a chance to say hi to you. We outright try to bribe you to get that information. And here's how we do that. Um, we will, if you give us your information, uh, we'll make a $5 donation to, I'm upping it to five for this week only, $5 to the Faith House. Yeah, one of the bookkeepers were like, it's four, no, it's five today. We'll make a $5 donation to the Faith House, which is a, uh, an organization out of Frederick that helps women who need a safe place to go and simultaneously tells them about Jesus. So uh, please partner with us on that. You know, one of the things that no one has to teach us, and <laughs> if you're a parent, if you've got grandkids or whatever, you know this is true. One of the things that no one had to teach us was how to exploit loopholes, a loophole, a loophole is this. It's a, it's a way around the rules that technically doesn't break the rules, right? And again, no one had to teach us how to exploit loopholes. Before we even knew what they were, you know, your mom would say, hey, you need to clean that plate. All right, I'll clean it right in the trash can, mom. That's what I'm gonna do. We knew how to find a loophole. You know, you said... I couldn't play Xbox until my homework was done. But you never, had, you never said it had to be done correctly. So I filled in all the answers, it's done, loophole. Right, like we're really good at doing that. Some, some of my favorites when I was a kid, like when we went on family trips in the car, we didn't have electronic devices. So we would drive each other crazy and I had siblings. And my parents would be pulling their hair out and they would say things like, you, don't touch your sister. Well, you know what I would do? I'd be like, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I would get as close as I could to that line, and I didn't technically break the rule. You've done it too, CJ, haven't you? Yeah. And you know the other one was this. My parents would say, put your hands over your mouth. I'm putting my hands over my mouth, mom and dad, right? Loophole. No one had to teach us how to find loopholes. We just figured that out. Listen, but when religious people... When religious people exploit a loophole in their own religion, we have a term for that. That's a hypocrite. A person who would take loopholes in their own religion, they would exploit it for their own benefit. You know what? Jesus actually had a specific term for people who did this. He called them whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs, because you know what? They look good on the outside, and as soon as anything like dirt would get on that, they would power wash it off. But inside, it was full, like a, it was rotten, it was nauseating, it was full of decay. The outside looked clean, put on a show, but the inside was dead. So here's the good news. The good news is, if, if you find yourself not really liking religious hypocrites, you actually have something in common with Jesus because Jesus would look at those people who are hypocrites and he would say, hey, you're a fool because you think that you're gonna get by with your behavior. 
We're continuing a series called Stops Along the Way. This summer, we're looking at the book of Mark. And what's important to know about the the study in the book of Mark is that it's actually the story of Jesus of Nazareth as told through the eyes of one of his best friends, Peter. But Peter wasn't writing it down. It was actually John Mark was like transcribing the story as Peter told it. So it's been dictated by him. 30 years after Simon Peter, he's one of Jesus' most popular disciples and he's traveling around the Galilee region and he's, he would visit a place and could you imagine being in one of these small towns and someone who was at the feet of Jesus was telling you the stories of Jesus. What an opportunity that was. So Peter is now in his 50 years, 50s. He's 30 years later. He's dictating the story of Jesus to John Mark and he's in Nero's Rome. And he doesn't even know that he doesn't, he's never going to leave Rome and he's never going to leave that city. And Mark, Mark who has heard this story so many times as they traveled from city to city, he's sitting down with Peter, now as an older man, and he coaxes out of it, the story out of him one more time. And then this document was copied and it was passed from faith community to faith community and eventually they would gather that together with the three other uh, the uh, three other gospels and then hundreds of years later in the fourth century they would eventually gather together those documents along with the writings to these different towns from the apostles in the Old Testament sacred writings they would gather that together and they would call that the Bible But it's so important that today as we look at this story, Mark and Peter, they were not writing the Bible. They were simply writing down what Peter experienced at the feet of Jesus. And this is what Peter tells us. Peter tells us that when Jesus steps onto the scene and he starts teaching people, he starts declaring, well, he declares this out of Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the time has come. Israel, you've been waiting. Creation has been groaning. You're frustrated because the leaders are so depraved. You're frustrated because you've been oppressed. You've been dealing with sin. God said he would come and make things new. But listen, I'm telling you, the time has come, he said. Because listen, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that you've heard about and it's always been up there where God is transcendent, I'm telling you that it's coming near. Because a new king is in town, and the king has come near to you. And so if that's true, that new king has a new way of doing things, and this new way of doing things calls from us a response, the most appropriate response is this, to repent and to believe. Why? Because this is good news. Now listen, when we heard the, hear the word repent, most of the time it has like this kind of negative connotation, but for Peter, this wasn't negative at all. He was saying, hey, if, if this is true, the king is near, then this is what you need to do. You need to face it and embrace it. Lean in because this is good news. The kingdom of God is near and you're going to miss it if you don't face it and embrace it. That was the message that Jesus had to, to tell everyone, and so what he would do is he would travel from town to town, small communities, and as he went, people that were sick, Jesus would heal them. These people who had never walked a day in their life, 
Jesus stepped in and they began walking and they had never seen, they couldn't see, they were blind for their entire life and Jesus heals them and they're made whole. So you could imagine, man, like one person getting healed would create a buzz, but imagine person after person becoming healed in these communities. What a huge effect that would have on the culture and the air. It would have been like it was electric being a part of this. In fact, what people would do is they would catch word about this and they would say, oh my goodness, my son has, is lame. I would do anything to see him healed. And so they would bring him in and they would say, I'm gonna just place him in the marketplace because I think this is where Jesus is gonna pass by. And maybe if he could just reach out and touch the, the hem of his cloak, my son would be healed or my mother would be healed. In fact, what this did, it created so much excitement that the book of Mark in every single chapter except for chapter one uses the term crowd because so many people wanted to be near Jesus and you can almost imagine Peter telling John Mark this story and like just like getting misty-eyed like you guys don't have any idea what it was like to be a part of something so good and we're setting people free and there was so much energy and excitement but then he realizes but but then you know what there began to be some faces in the crowd and they weren't happy faces they were actually rather hostile we're going to pick up the story there. If you grab your orange Bible from underneath you, it's going to be page 6. Uh, it's Mark chapter 7. We're going to be in page 687. And this is what it tells us. It tells us that the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, they have come from Jerusalem and they gathered around Jesus. Now, Dan, go ahead and show the, the, the map. I, I want you to see this map of this area, a little hard to see, but at the top you see the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. That was the region that Jesus was teaching, and these teachers of the law came all the way down from Judea. So you have Galilee up at the top, you have Samaria, kind of like a no man's wasteland. They didn't want to go through there because they thought the Samaritans were dirty people. You don't want to pass through there. And then the bottom was Judea, and in Judea was Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was a big deal because it was where the main temple was, and it was where all the religious leaders were focused and concentrated. That's where they lived. Now, these religious leaders caught word that there was this teacher in Galilee, he was doing amazing things. And so they, they said, we need to send a delegation up there because you know what, they were a little concerned that he would start causing trouble, specifically that he might start causing political trouble because they were already oppressed by the Romans and they didn't need any more troublemakers. So they sent a delegation and it was a six or a seven day journey from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee. And so what they did is they mingled in with this crowd and they were leaning in and they were listening and they were trying to figure out, is this guy, who is he? Is he just a teacher? Does he set himself up as a rabbi or a prophet? Is he like one of those other people that called themselves a Messiah, they've been squashed. Is he the same? Is he from God? How do we understand him? And they're kind of leaning into this. They're concerned, and they want to send word back to Jerusalem. And as soon as they get there, they see something to them that's so disturbing about the people following Jesus. Verse 2, and some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, they were unwashed. Now, Mark, he's writing this down, and he knows that there's maybe some Gentiles that are going to be hearing about this, so he goes on to tell us what he's talking about. Verse 3, 
The Pharisees and all the Jews, they don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, I want to pause right here, and this is really important as we read these stories of Jesus. There was this thought, it really was more of a myth, that when God handed down the Ten Commandments to Moses and it was written down, that there was also an oral Torah, an oral law that God gave to Moses but was never written down. And Moses would then tell Joshua and Joshua would tell the priests and the priests would tell the religious leaders and it was handed down generation after generation for hundreds of years. And so these religious leaders, they saw their task and that they were like overseers of this oral Torah and tradition. Not just, they didn't see themselves only as like, hey, we're here for the written law, but also this, these laws that were passed down generation to generation. Now, historically, we actually don't have any evidence that this actually existed. In fact, by the first century, there were so many different versions of these oral Torah laws, unwritten laws. There were so many different versions that the religious leaders couldn't even agree on which was the actual set of laws. And so what would happen is if you wanted to be someone who like understood the Old Testament, you would study with a rabbi. And so I would look at the rabbis and each rabbi had a different understanding of what the oral Torah was. One would be more conservative, the other one would be more liberal. And so you'd say, well, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. I'll pick this guy. He's kind of like right in the middle. And so when Jesus shows up, these these, these teachers of the law, they were saying, well, where's Jesus on this perspective and on this spectrum? But they couldn't even agree what it actually was. And Jesus, man, he wasn't buying it. In fact, his primary argument with the Pharisees wasn't over the written law, but it was over this oral law, this tradition. He didn't just he, didn't, he just didn't believe it. Besides, these, this tradition, it made God small. And it made God petty. And it actually separated the people that God loved from God. And it created extra burdens for them to carry. Verse 5, So the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they asked Jesus, Hey, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So they had taken one of these laws that was never written down and they have equated it somehow to the written law of God and they actually are accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking that law. And so there's this tension all of a sudden that emerges on the scene. And they show up, and before they can even have a conversation with Jesus, they're slinging mud at his disciples. And again, Jesus, man, he's not having any of it because he knows their heart. And so he just lights into them. This is what he says. He replied, verse 6, Isaiah was right. Remember, remember this. Remember, they were quoting from the oral tradition, the things that were never written down, but Jesus steps in and he says, I'm gonna tell you what was actually written down. 
And they, they took the book of Isaiah very seriously. He said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. <laughs> you can just imagine these disciples. They're saying, man, Jesus... Remember, they came a long way from Jerusalem, this delegation, and the disciples are probably thinking, this is great. They're going to recognize how great of a teacher Jesus is. We're finally going to get some credibility. And I just wonder if Peter was thinking, you know, Jesus, hold on a minute. We're eventually going to take you into Jerusalem. We're going to have you crowned the Messiah. We're going to need friends in Jerusalem. We don't want to make enemies of these religious leaders before we even get there. But Jesus, man, he doesn't back off one bit. He replies, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips. Say the word lips. Lips. These people honor me with their lips. In other words, they can say the right kinds of things. They can put on a show. They can wear the right kinds of clothes because, come on, come on, religious people. We're pretty good at that, aren't we? These people, he says, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Say the word hearts. Hearts. You know how to say all the right things, Jesus would say, but your heart is so far from God. God's commands, you know what they're supposed to do? They're supposed to draw people to him and point them to him and make relationships deeper, but you're adding layer upon layer and it's just getting in the way from the people that God loves. You don't get his heart. And listen, you're missing the kingdom that's come near and you're making it harder for other people. He says this then, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. This is how we know Jesus didn't buy the oral Torah tradition because he says, look, you guys have made this up and you've passed it down generation to generation and you've turned religion into a game that only you can win. Religious leaders, man, we're good at that, aren't we? we? We know the text. We love the text. We can create rules so that we are the only ones who win the game. And then listen, this, this is where it kind of settles down right here with us when Jesus asks this and says this next statement. You have let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to human traditions. He continues. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Listen, you, you guys have taken the thing that God has clearly spoken, the thing that's written down that we can actually read, and you've let go of that and you are clinging to this list of rules that you guys can't even agree upon, this oral tradition, this culture, this subculture that you've created. You've ignored that, and you're clinging to this. In other words, you've created religious loopholes that are there just to serve you and are for your benefit. And then, again, I just think Jesus' disciples, they're just, 
cringing in their jaws to the ground like, oh, snap, I can't believe Jesus just said this. But then Jesus steps in with a really specific example, and he humiliates the whole group by citing a way that they're hypocrites. It's an example that allowed them to bypass the actual law. And so what he does, this is fascinating, is he actually quotes the written Torah. He says this, for Moses actually said, again, this isn't, this isn't the verbal, this is the written. Moses actually said, honor your father and your mother. Now, I want you to see what he does next because what Jesus does is he marries the statement of the Old Testament with the punishment that goes with it. It's associated in Exodus 21, 17. Again, Jesus doesn't just quote the commandment. He attaches it to the punishment from the covenant. And he says this, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. In other words, ignoring your responsibility to honor your parents, it's, it's not a trivial offense. It's, it's so important for us to recognize this as 21st century Christians, that whenever Jesus talked about the law, he never detaches the Old Testament law from the punishments that were associated with this. And modern Christians will do this all the time. We are going to fight and we are going to picket that the Ten Commandments are going to be in the town square and we'll say, we think that this is so important to have the Ten Commandments and we want to follow God's commands. Okay, well, all of them? Yes, all of them. Okay, well, do you know what the Fifth Commandment is? To honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Now, the Sabbath is on a Saturday and yet we're not meeting on a Saturday. We're meeting on a Sunday. And most of you all take your kids to soccer games and mow the lawn on a Saturday. Well, okay, maybe not all 10. Maybe it's just nine, not all 10, but nine of them. And then we'll, we'll maybe sculpt it down to maybe seven. You see what we've done? We've done the same thing that the Pharisees did. We've taken the law of God and we've sculpted it down. And we always remove it from the punishment that's actually associated with these things. But Jesus says, hey, it doesn't work that way. If you want the Ten Commandments, that's fine. You can have them, but you're, you can't like, just pick and choose from the law. It's an all-encompassing deal, and with that law comes the punishment that associates it. From Jesus' perspective, the Old Testament is an all-inclusive meal ticket. You can't just pick and choose. When Jesus stepped on the scene, he said, look, I'm not telling the law that it's invalid anymore. He's saying the law is a contract between God and these people and it all needs to be observed. But guess what? I'm going to observe it all. And I'm going to satisfy that contract. I'm not nullifying it. It's not going away. I'm saying it's completed. And now there's a new contract. And this new contract is a new way of operating. So you can't say, hey, this contract isn't, and none of it matters, and the punishment doesn't matter. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying it matters so much that I'm actually going to pay for that contract so that you can be out of that contract. Listen, this is so important to us as Christians. We don't honor our father and our mother because Moses is our guy. Moses isn't our guy. That was the old contract and Jesus is saying, I have a new way, a new way of relating to God, a new covenant, a new contract. 
Moses isn't our guy, and, and Peter was actually recognizing in hindsight something that Jesus said where he stepped in front of his disciples and he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. My word is authoritative. I'm the one in charge. I'm a new king with a new kingdom and a new way of doing things. And you're not going to operate in that old way of doing things. There's a new way of doing things. So listen, Moses isn't our guy. Jesus is our guy and he is our king. And so we're not bound to the law anymore. So we don't honor our father and our mother because the Ten Commandments say so. We honor our father and our mother because Jesus said, hey, I want you to love one another the way that I loved you. And that includes your mom and your dad. And it includes your daughter. And it includes one another in church. That's why we honor that. So listen, back to the story. Back to the story, verse 10. For Moses actually said, again, this isn't oral, it's written down, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. That's what's clear. It's been written down. But you say that anyone that declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corbin, that is, it's devoted to God, then you no longer uh, let them do anything for their father or their mother. Now, you kind of read that and you're like, what on earth are they even talking about? The interesting thing is that Mark doesn't tell us. He's writing so early that he assumed his audience understood what they were talking about, which just tells us that when he wrote it is when the eyewitness accounts were actually there. But here's what he's talking about. So taking care of your aging parents, it was time-consuming. It was expensive. It was challenging. So these religious leaders, you know what they did? They found a loophole. And this was the loophole. You would take all of your wealth and all of your current income and all of your future income and all of your resources and you would say, I'm going to give that to God so that would be giving it to the temple. So now everything you own, everything that comes your way, everything that you inherit ultimately belongs to the temple and yet while you're still alive, you have access to it. So it's yours to enjoy and when you die, it all goes to the temple. And that means that when your friend or your neighbor or your mom or dad come to you and say, I have this need, you can be like, man, I really wish I could help, but I can't give that away. That all belongs to God. Listen, this infuriated Jesus that they would take the command of God, find a loophole and use it as a way to hurt the people that God loved. Now, before we judge them too harshly, I want to ask you a question, and I want to maybe ask me a question. Have you ever sinned against somebody? Maybe it was unintentional, maybe it was intentional, and you don't even know what this word sin means. Like, have you ever hurt somebody? And then internally you're thinking, I know this wasn't right, but I'm going to, I'm going to show up at church, I'm going to give money, I'm going to serve at the soup kitchen, and so that's going to make me right with God, but you've never gone to that person to make it right? If, you, if you've ever done that, Jesus would look to you and would look to me and say this. He would say that you nullify the word of God by your tradition. 
and that us as 21st century Christians and Christ followers, we have created and adopted a tradition that's directly in conflict with what Jesus clearly taught. Because what he taught is that you can't pretend that you're right with God if you haven't made it right with someone that you've hurt or sinned against. That you can't pretend I'm okay with God that I can't see if you've not made it right with the people that you can see. And isn't it true? Isn't it true that we do? I mean, for me, it's like, it's like if, you, if you offended my children, if you hurt my children and then said to me, hey, let's do coffee, I'd be like, I'm sorry, you need to make it right with my kids. <laughs> like, you, you, you offended my wife. I'm sorry, I'm not going to hang out. We're not going to be okay until you make it right with them. And Jesus is saying it's the same way with God. And isn't it true? Especially, listen, if we grew up, if you grew up in a religious context that, that we have these mental gymnastics because we think we're right with God because of this thing that we've taught or these actions we've gone through, Jesus would say, hey, there you go again. You're doing exactly what the teachers of the law did. You took this tradition of man and used it to supersede what God has clearly proclaimed, which is that your love for other people is a reflection of your love for God. He says, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Jesus said, I could sit here all day and tell you thing after thing and layer upon layer of how you violate this and how you follow your own teachings over the clear teachings of God. And listen, you think you're right with God, but you're not. You're not. You're not seeing clearly. Man, and Peter... And the disciples, they're like, man, this is so offensive, Jesus. I mean, they came all the way up here, and they didn't even get to their first agenda item, and Jesus is done. And he turns around, and he walks away. And the disciples are just shocked. Here's what I think you and I have to wrestle with as we think about this passage. It's a question that Jesus asked. And it's this. Is it possible that you have let go of the actual commands of God and that you're holding on to human traditions? Is it possible that you've done that? It's not necessarily your fault. You've been taught this from your pastor. This is your family dynamics of how you grew up. But is it possible that you have let go of what God has clearly said and you're following some sort of conjured, concocted tradition, practice that you've just grown up with and you use loopholes to rationalize a heart that's far away from God? Is it possible Jesus would look at you and would look at me and say, you stand up and you worship and you raise your hands, but you're worshiping me in vain because you're relying on your ability to follow your own rules rather than pressing into my heart and my mind, rather than being guided and directed by me. I think we have to process this and think about it as a church. The church is really good at saying this is our form 
and we meet at 10 a.m. every Sunday in this place. Don't sit in my seat because that's where I sit every week. And don't change my songs because I love my songs and I want my kids to know my songs. And don't make me dress differently than I want to dress. And we say this is a tradition. By the way, do you know none of those things are in the Bible that we have to meet at 10 a.m.? That you have to wear button-down shoes and aren't allowed to wear flip-flops to church or that you have to wear a suit or that you're not allowed to wear a suit? You know, none of that's in Scripture. And we can take these things that are the traditions of man and we say it is so important that we uphold and maintain this subculture of Christianity and we neglect what Christ has clearly spoken about what it means to be a light in our community or what it means to love other people or what it means to be sacrificial or what it means to put someone else first or what it means to think about those in our community that are far away from him. I think we need to process that and think that and have that as a rudder for us as a church. But I also think we have to process it individually as well. And so I want to ask some uncomfortable questions. They're uncomfortable for me too. How about this one? Do you ever try to figure out how close you can get to sinning before actually sinning? The silly games we play... (laughs) Make God so small that we would say, I'm going to see how far I can get. And so I'm not going to have the affair. I'm just going to flirt with her at work. And what we would say is, God, I want you in my back pocket and I want you to bless me. But I'm not going to submit my life to your, your, your guidance and your rule in my life. I want a little bit of God in my life, but I really want to do things my own way. I think Jesus would look at us and Jesus would say, you worship me in vain your hearts are far from me how about this question do you believe that there's a ritual that makes you right with God while removing your responsibility to make things right with others Jesus would say there you go again you've created the laws of man and you're neglecting what I've clearly showed you and you think that somehow that your conscience can be off the hook but you're ignoring what I've clearly taught Do you know how this makes you look to outsiders? You look like a hypocrite because they know better. They see it. You look foolish. How about this question? Do you feel guiltier about missing church than you do about mistreating someone at work? I'm going to show up to church. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to give a certain way. I'm going to vote a certain way, but I'm going to be condescending or aggressive with a person at work, and I can treat them, man, they're, don't you know they're my employee? I'm allowed to, te- to treat them that way. I think Jesus would have some words for us. How about this one? Do you have a group of people that you've labeled as the enemy that you've allowed your heart to hate? So they wave a certain flag, they live in a certain area, their skin is a certain color, they have a culture, they have a way of speaking, they have a value as a system, and you're saying, I don't think those values are going to help us as a culture. I don't think that they're pro-God, so this is a group of people, and I'm going to lump them into a category as the, 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 the undesirables, and so I'm going to permit my heart to hate them, and I've created an enemy category in my heart. Maybe they vote a certain way. I don't know what it is. Have you allowed your heart to do that? And Jesus would look at us and he would say, do you know those are the very people I came to reach? Do you know those are the very people that I drew near? And the Pharisees said, why are you with the sinners and the tax collectors? 
think Jesus would have some strong words for us. And this is why the invitation to follow Jesus is so extraordinary because he's inviting us to be done with all of that silly nonsense. To be done with making God small and petty and to be done with these traditions that make us look foolish to the people outside of our faith. So listen, this, this decision, this decision to do away with all of that silly nonsense, it's, this is what it is. It's an invitation to live differently, to have a different kind of mode of operation. He's inviting us into the kingdom of conscience. The kingdom of conscience is motivated by one simple rule, and it's the law of Christ. And it's not ten rules, it's not nine rules, it's not five, it's not even three. It's all-encompassing. We've been invited to participate in the kingdom of conscience, to be fine-tuned to this one idea that we are to love others as God through Christ loved us. It's this one commandment, and it overarches all of our relationships, all of our activities, how I spend my time, how I spend my resources, how I spend my money. It's invited into my marriage and how I parent my children that I would love other people the way that God through Christ has treated us. And what's so brilliant about that is that there are no loopholes for that. There are no gotchas. There are no workarounds. There are no ways to cheat. Pastor and author Andy Stanley says it this way, that we would wake up every single day to this question, what does love require of me? And anytime I interact with someone in my family, anytime I interact with that person that drives me nuts, what does love require of me? When I'm confused and I say, I don't know what the right way is to go, when I don't know how to think, act, or what I want to know to uh, say, think, or do, I ask, what does love require of you? You know what else that does? it means that I need to understand how God loved me through Christ. It means that I actually need to go deep into the gospel, not into following the rules, but I need to stop and process, well, how did God love me through Christ? Romans tells me that while I was yet an enemy of God, God came near to me, that Christ died for me, that while I was still acting in opposition towards him, that he, uh, he operated towards my favor and my benefit. You know what that means? It means that I can look at people that I have a hard time forgiving and I can say, if God would be kind and gracious to me, maybe just maybe I can be kind and gracious to them. Even if they never ask for forgiveness, I'm gonna walk in their direction. Why? Because that's how God loved me. Do you see how it flips everything around and it starts to change you from the inside out rather than the outside in? We are great at crafting ways to look good on the outside. Well, meanwhile, our heart and our behaviors are so far from God. I have a, an Apple Watch. It's a smart watch. And they have all of these metrics about how you can be a healthy person. You breathe so often. You exercise so often. You do these things, right, that says, good job, you've completed your circle for the day. The other day, I was bored to tears. I'm sitting down. I'm binge-watching something with a bag of Oreos. I get up to go get a glass of milk, and my watch says, congratulations, you've met your standoff for the day. <laughs> it looked good on the outside. But what was happening on the inside? I was halfway through that bag of Oreos, and I needed milk to make them go down quicker. <laughs> Come on, like we're, we're good at that, aren't we? 
We're good at shaping the outside, but Jesus says you need to love others the way that God through Christ has loved you, and it changes everything. Man, when, when I see that God loved me like that, when I see what Jesus actually invites us into, that he says when you pray, you don't say, God, what do I need to do to earn your favor, but I get to call you Father? That means that I'm not saying, how close to the line can I get before I sin? That's treating God like he's a boss, like it's a contract, like it's, a, like it's something that you want to get as much as you can out before you violate the contract. Jesus says, no, you're in a relationship. And when I'm in a relationship with my father, I'm not saying how much can I take advantage of him before he kicks me out of the house. Instead, I say, how can I delight the heart of my father? You see how it changes you from the inside? That's what the law of Christ, choosing to love others the way that God through Christ loves us. And he would simply look at us and he would invite us and he would say, look, if you've been playing games with God, would you be willing to let go of that? Would you be willing to surrender that before him? Would you be willing to say, God, help me to go deeper in how you love me and let that change me from the inside? Because Jesus would say, hey, listen, the kingdom of God is not just up there. It's not just follow the rules, but it's near. And it's available to you. And it calls on us to repent, to face it, and embrace it to believe. And listen, that's the invitation that's before me. And I've been following Jesus for over 35 years now. Every single day is to face it and embrace it and to choose to let go of the traditions of man and follow the commands of Christ to love. And it's in front of you as well, and that's what he invites us into. Can I pray for us? God, how quick our hearts are to find and just like to, to close the circle and say, look at my stand goal. I got it done for the day. <laughs> and yet in my heart, I've chosen to hate. And how quick my heart, this pastor's heart is to be like those Pharisees. You call us deeper. God, would you empower us to see and act and believe? God, would you bless each one of these friends this week? God, would you empower them? Because today they are going to have an invitation from the enemy to play the part but not soften their heart. And so, God, would, would these words come to mind almost like when the watch pings you, would your spirit ping us and draw us to obedience and surrender before you? We love you, God. We praise you. We pray this in the name of Jesus.